there's two things that have been really fascinating trends in the last two years. One is that 30% of my students no longer interested in actually getting the degree. They're interested in educational experience, but don't care about the degree. The second is this past year, I didn't lose anybody to traditional colleges, which would be typically our biggest competitor for our, my organization. Instead, I lost them all directly to jobs. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. Well, I'm delighted to inform you that we have a friend of ours and, I should state for the record, board member as well, Jonathan Brush on the show. We're very delighted to have him as a guest. Just real quickly, Jonathan Brush is the president and the CEO of Unbound, which is a really interesting group of people, educational projects, learning-based effort that is fascinating. We're going to actually, we're going to get into a little bit of, of what they do, but today we will we really want to talk about education in America because it's a, it's a topic that is a pretty live wire one. And there's, there are several shakeups happening. I think a lot of people questioning even whether there's value in going to college, for instance, especially with the, you know, growing cost of education. And so there's a veritable minefield that we can walk through right now. So yeah, this should, I think this, get this will be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah that's, and, and, first of all, I'm d- delighted to be here, but then I just, I just love that introduction, uh, Cameron. We're going to talk about a veritable minefield. So like, I'm very, very excited now about what, where exactly this conversation is going to go. Oh, you're so. going to be safe. Everything will be <laughs> yeah, fine, but <laughs> a little bit of armor plating around the edges here. So yeah. yeah. Well, I just wanted to say by way of, of introduction as well, that um, for those of you who sometimes listen to our podcast and think, what in the world are those guys thinking? that you're about to hear the voice of Jonathan Brush, who's on our board, who will let us know what in the world were you guys thinking? So (laughs) you're going to get to hear some of the uh, background uh, wisdom that helps corral us sometimes in probably more helpful directions. But yeah, so let me point to, um, I mean, so there's some statistical analysis here. Let's start at the top at the higher education level, where I think the numbers that I saw that since 2020, there's been a 14% decrease in the general public in America's perspective of whether or not a college education is a good thing. Now, to parse those numbers out just slightly, um, by and large, most people believe that higher education is good for you in your long-term financial outlook. However, a lot of the question is around whether or not what's happening in our academic institutions is good for the future of our country. So those are two very different things there, um, and we'll want to we'll want to parse that out. I think. I also want to say that I believe. All three of us are the, are the product of private liberal arts institutions and all went to kind of what a lot of people would consider the standard way of doing things. Um, although we probably didn't fit any standard model while we did the standard thing. So anyway, uh, I'm coming from a perspective of having done that and loving it and thought it was worth everything that I invested in it. And, and it was a great time of opportunity for me. Maybe I'll say more about that later. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of people in my shoes who say, yes, I'm totally glad that I did it. It was definitely worth it for me. However, I would have some hesitancy in exactly what I would encourage younger folks that I care about around me to do. So I think that's some of the the moment that I feel like we're sitting in. Yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting sort of time in history for that, Nathan. Uh, first, there's a big demographic cliff coming in terms of just the amount of people who can go to higher education. But I think the statistics you're reflecting here has to do with people who are just uncertain whether they should. And uh, this is completely anecdotal, so not with the the kind of research that Nathan's looking at here. But uh, I run a, a 
some would call a non-traditional higher education option, but still leads people to be able to earn a college degree. And uh, there's two things that have been really fascinating trends in the last two years. One is that 30% of my students no longer interested in actually getting the degree. They're interested in educational experience, but don't care about the degree. The second is this past year, I didn't lose anybody to traditional colleges, which would be typically our biggest competitor for our, my organization. Instead, I lost them all directly to jobs. And so both of those things are really new and I think pretty fascinating and interesting um, developments. That's just not something I've been in higher education for almost 25 years, and I've never seen that kind of fast trend line turn of any kind, let alone in that direction. Uh, so anecdotally for just my small sliver of the, you know, the piece here, but I think those are really interesting and kind of unique uh, developments that are, yeah, they, they seem pretty new to me in terms of my experience and, and exposure to that. Yeah. And Jonathan, I'm curious because you've got a big emphasis on project-based learning, based learning instead of just questions and answers. Talk about that a little bit and sort of unpack that for us, because I think there's there there are some really compelling insights there. Yeah, well, and let's throw, yeah. throw the flag in here, too, when when we say this. By having Jonathan on the show, explain to us a little bit. I mean, just you, put in your bias clause here, Jonathan, before you answer Cameron's question. Yeah, well, actually, I was going to just say, first of all, buckle up. This is like, you know, when, when you take a racehorse and you open the gates, right? This is like the topic that you like to talk about all the time. And I talk about it all the time because this is what I do. So let's just admit some bias up front. Um, I have a perspective on this that I think is informed by my professional and personal experience. And, uh, you know, I've, I've not gotten here accidentally to some extent. It's sort of a purposeful journey. But I do have a bias here in the sense that I'm going to promote uh, a kind of educational model and thinking uh, that I actually do for a living. And so that's just really helpful to know. <laughs> so this is not an unbiased researcher here. This is more you of somebody about who's actually doing it. So, yeah. That's right. And so, but it's it's helpful to know if you listen to that sort of where I'm coming from. Also, because of that, I sort of trend on that side. And it's worth noting, Nathan said this earlier, that the three of us come from uh, traditional, private, somewhat selective liberal arts backgrounds. Uh, like Nathan, I had a really excellent experience there. I don't believe that experience currently exists the same way, which is part of the reason mm -hmm. I am where I am. Um, but I also note this. There's going to be some things I, I suspect that we'll say here that are kind of pessimistic about higher education in some senses. That's true. And there's some things to be frustrated and upset about at, at some levels. Uh, but this is also a golden age of education opportunity. There's never been a time, probably in human history, where it has been so easy to access higher education options in a wide variety of different ways, and that allows the timing and flexibility to be so extreme. And uh, so there is a bit of a golden age here too. So that is actually simultaneously going on with some of the things that are frustrating. Uh, also, I don't believe in a one-size-fits-all opportunity here. In fact, uh, for the organization that I run, we're pretty bold about telling people, this is a great option for a certain kind of person. It's not a great option for others. Um, and so, in fact, for some people, a traditional, selective, perhaps private liberal arts education is exactly what you need. So anyhow, those are kind of the caveats and the small, the small mm -hmm. print that we put in there. But um, Cameron, you asked a question about kind of questions and answers education. And so here's the thesis that I run on. Um, now, I always preface this and say, look, I'm actually extraordinarily skeptical of people who say, everything has changed. You know, everything's different. I tend to think there's some principles and some currents of human behavior that run underneath everything. And so, yeah, certain things sort of change at the top and then underneath some things are the same. Um, and I still think that here, but I do think that this is one of those places where I'll break my own rule and say, there's something that's fundamentally changed. Hmm. And then I'm going to throw this out here. And I think that most people, when they hear it go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so here's, here's the part that I think is really different. 
we have maybe since the dawn of human human civilization lived in what I would characterize as an answers based paradigm, which is that there was an advantage to knowing the answers. And that's why higher education in some fashion was so valuable when it comes to business. Now, you could have a separate argument that I would actually be pretty interested in that says higher education is intrinsically valuable because of what it does in terms of broadening somebody's mind. And, And I'm not at all arguing with that concept at all. Right. However, in North America, the United States, at least, uh, Higher education is something a bit different. Higher education, uh, probably since post-World War II at least, has been primarily a vocational training ground. And so most people who go into higher education are doing so because they're looking to get a better job. So a degree, a higher degree equals better pay, better salary, better earnings over time. And so it's a vocational training system, which, by the way, it was never designed to be. But that's maybe a discussion we get into later, right? Mm. Uh, but you can see why this is uh, helpful because if you ran a business – and you ran into something that you needed information about or you needed knowledge about something, the cost to get that knowledge was relatively high, meaning that if somebody didn't have it in their head and they could kind of bring it out right there, then you had to go gain that knowledge. Now, you know, just to, just to illustrate how fast this has changed, I'm not, I don't think, extraordinarily old, uh, although maybe in this category, <laughs> in this uh, setting I am a little bit. But when I was in high school, if I need to learn something new, and I didn't know it, and my parents didn't know it, and my teachers didn't know it. I had to physically drive to the library, pull a card catalog, pull the card out of the card catalog, run to the stacks and grab the book, look in the table of context or the index, read the stuff in the book that you need to know, and then either memorize that or put it into a card system or filing system where I could access it later. And that was the way that I had to access knowledge, right? And so clearly you can see that if you're in a business setting or some other place, the people that you have that have more of that stuff in their head uh, the faster you can get that, speed is always a winner in business, and so that helps you get that information into play faster. So when you're hiring somebody that has a degree or has advanced degrees, you're basically hiring a, a walking file cabinet. You know, somebody can do those things. Now, here's the thing. That has fundamentally changed, and it's fundamentally changed because we're all walking around with these you know, little pocket computers, and I'm holding up my phone here for those of you who are listening instead of seeing the video. And so now you literally have instant access measured in fractions of a second to basically the entirety of the world's knowledge. And so that means that the emphasis has shifted. There's not much of an advantage to having answers in your head, although I would argue strongly you have to have enough educational answers to be able to contextualize the information you're processing. But Mm -hmm. that means that the focus has really shifted to being able to ask better questions. And I think that's a fascinating sort of twist because I think we now live in a world that is a questions-based paradigm. And so people who are trained to ask better questions wind up being much, much better prepared for the kind of world they're actually going to live in. The problem is that the entire educational structure from kindergarten through higher education is entirely based on an answers-based system. And so you have an educational system now that is completely out of sync with the realities that people actually face. And so while there's still some redeeming qualities there in terms of enough information to run the republic, uh, the, the broadening aspects of education, when we're talking about practical vocational aspects of it, uh, things have fundamentally shifted. And most institutions not only haven't shifted, they're not even talking about this in any meaningful way. Uh, so that's just a, that's a higher education trend that I find fascinating. And uh, to Cameron's point, I run a project-based education company, which really tries to, which is a, a kind of a fancy way of saying we really try to focus on that emphasis on asking questions and doing applied education, meaning that we're putting mm-hmm. it into action almost immediately. Yeah. So let me, I, I think it might be helpful here to also bring in maybe a few, if you got, if you gentlemen are willing, 
a few autobiographical details from each of us on our own educational experiences or journeys, right? So talking to other people, particularly in the United States, I'm still a third culture kid. I've been here for over 20 years, but I still, I still feel like an outsider in some ways. And the approach to education in, in America is so pragmatic, you know, college equals your gateway to a job, supposedly right. for most, for most people, that is not how I thought about college at all. First of all, I'm a humanities major, so I'm already crazy. <laughs> the the right? idea that there'd so, be a financial benefit to what you spent your time doing is suspect early on. Exactly. So, I mean, I remember, I, I vividly remember actually the first freshman orientation. We're sitting together, our, our hall meeting, and we're all, you know, you have to say your name, you know, where you're from and what's your major. And I, I'll never forget this one, this one guy on my hall. Call me stupid, but what are you gonna do with a philosophy major? And it was really, I mean, and and I, th this guy might sound a little, a little like a adult, but he was actually really, really sharp guy. But I studied philosophy not because I thought it was gonna be especially lucrative or that it was gonna be some avenue into, to, you know, just a great, you know, successful career. I, I thought it was really, really interesting. And then when I did grad school, same thing. I, I studied what I thought was, I mean, there was going to be some practical benefit to me, but I thought this would be, you know, mind and spirit enlarging as a pursuit. And that's what I, that's why I did. It. I thought it was really interesting. I wanted my head filled with interesting ideas. And so, and that seems still to me to this day to be a perfectly reasonable thing to have done. So I'm wondering if, if what it looked like for, for you two when you were, when you were embarking on your college careers. Yeah, I want to hear Jonathan's version of this first. Well, I just got to say, this is an interesting clean sweep. I mean, I think the answer to your friend's question is that apparently you all sit on podcasts. I mean, like you all work on podcasts, because <laughs> I think we're a clean sweep across the board for three philosophy majors, which honestly, I have to tell you, I've probably never been in proximity to you know, like in this kind of setting with three philosophy majors. Normally, I'm the one and only, and only Nathan was smart enough to get a STEM degree to go along with it in there case he had it needed a backup <laughs> plan. So. Um, yeah, so I have, uh, Cameron says, he says, uh, what do you say? It's a third culture. Is that the way you say it? That's right. Cameron? Yeah. Third, so, cult, third culture kid. Yep. So I have a sneaking suspicion, Nathan, that if he ever starts to feel like he's starting to swing back into the second culture thing, because the time has been too much that he will instantly relocate to Europe again, uh, just to be able to hold the edge there, Cameron. So that you can uh, get that outside perspective. Um, but yeah. in some ways, I was a third culture kid as well, not because I lived internationally, but because I was homeschooled as I grew up, which clearly has given me some major problems in terms of my success in life, my ability to play each other's and uh, my socialization issues. Uh, but uh, so I grew up uh, homeschooled at a time when that was a really, really odd thing. And in fact, was the first homeschooled student admitted to the college where I attended oh, wow. um, and then went to a private selective liberal arts college um, and then Unlike the other uh, esteemed and academic people here, I graduated with just an undergraduate degree, but in philosophy and religion. Uh, then I went to work for the school where I graduated from and uh, did traditional work there for uh, almost 12 years, uh, about nine or 10 of those spent as the director of admissions for that college. So I had kind of a real inside view of higher education. And then I left higher education, this is important to note, not because I was particularly upset with my institution that I had both graduated from and worked for. I had good experiences doing both those things. I had a wonderful experience as a student, and I really loved working for the institution. But I left for um, two primary, well, three primary reasons. Uh, the first and most pressing was that I began to think that I was making a living off of asking other people to make bad financial decisions. 
And so I saw a major oh, wow. debt problem in higher education, which was not limited to my institution, but that I didn't see a great answer for in traditional higher education. So I was watching people, uh, you know, I borrowed $7,500 to go to school, thought it was a great deal and paid it off in about half the time I needed to. Uh, by the time I left the college, I was watching people borrow $70,000 to get a degree in music to become high school music teachers. And I wasn't a math major, but even I could figure out that that was not really a great set of math problems there. Uh, the second thing was I watched after the 2000 presidential elections, which I know is really far away from most people now, but I watched the campus that had been basically non-political and my professors in the philosophy and religion department argue from all sides of an argument, and I thought that was really great education, become really increasingly aggressive on one side of the agenda, um, and in many ways anti-Christian and certainly kind of having a, a stronger bias there. And I just was frustrated with that and felt that there was only one side being represented. And then finally, the last thing was, I just kind of to what I said earlier, I was starting to doubt whether the kind of education that Cameron, you talked about and I appreciated was possible to deliver in an institution where most people were coming to A, get a better job, B, have a big party, and C, play sports uh, or whatever else. In other words, I didn't see people that coming for the primary, the majority of people at the college where I worked were not coming because they wanted to broaden their mind intellectually. They were coming for an extended period of adolescence. And even though the college didn't necessarily want to do that, market forces were causing them to have to cater to that sort of student instead. Um, so that led me to kind of go a different direction, which ultimately led me to non-traditional education, first kind of a form of online education, and now what we do uh, to, uh, presently with, with Unbound. Uh, so anyhow, that would be my autobiographical sketch there. Nathan? Yeah, well, and so our, this this will be helpful to some people because this is where Jonathan and I merge in life. And so, yeah, so I went in physics major and um, actually finished that a year early and then added philosophy and religion as a second major because it overlapped with some uh, yeah, interest I had. Um, and, uh, that's all a long story, but I remember my, like the last week of my senior year, my roommate double majored in biology and chemistry and minored in philosophy. And I was double majoring in physics and philosophy and minoring in math. And so we both like just loved the whole experience of learning. And I think the liberal arts system was set up for us. Um, both of us were self-paced students, but had, um, significant financial aid through scholarships. And so, yeah, I think I owed 20 couple thousand when I graduated, but, you know, split an apartment with a friend and ate rice and beans and rode a bike to work and paid that off in pretty short order. Um, so that, that all worked out financially, but I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life. And, um, so Jonathan hired me to work in the admissions office and, and that was part of me being <laughs> able to pay back the school, some of what I owed them. Um, so that was 2009. Yeah. So eight, nine, yeah, something like that. Yeah something like that. So, um, so yeah, that's where our paths cross there. But I, so I think it starts farther back than that for me because I come from, and this is true. Actually, this is important. I think to point out, um, I came from a family that loved to learn and, and, and like the, the idea wasn't just that, um, learning was, there was a utility to it for sure, but there was a, a majesty to the world. There was a delight of discovery. There was a real pleasure in wrestling with questions and problem solving and, and taking questions, uh, for what they really were, um, like the way that they were actually asked by people, not by, and we can all tell stories about some of the pedantic stuff we ran into in philosophy classes that seemed totally disconnected from reality. Um, but I think, you know, you think of the two-year-old who's always asking why I don't think people stop asking questions. It's just that people get tired of answering them. And so we stop asking the question. 
And so if you live in a, in a family or a subcontext or culture where it's, it's a, a fun thing to ask questions, you just actually keep on asking them. And so I ran into a lot of ideas uh, in my undergrad and later education that I disagreed with, but I was never asked a more difficult question in a college class than I had been asked by my grandparents or somebody at my church or somebody in my family. And so I imagine boot camp is difficult. I imagine it's torture if you've never done a push-up before. But if you've done a whole lot of push-ups and a whole lot of running before you get there, um, it still might be miserable, but you're going to survive it. And so I think some of this, and we can maybe maybe our conversation will trim back down into the lower and uh, how our households are set up as places of education um, will be an important part of that. So anyway, I had a great experience. And then I worked for Jonathan for two years, three years, and he left to do his thing. And I left to go do the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, as it was called at the time. So our ways parted again there. But that's, yeah, that's the angle that I was coming on on that. And I think I think I'm still learning. I think every two years I learn as much now as I learned in my four-year undergrad degree. So in some ways, your undergraduate degree doesn't count as much as whether or not it sets you up to be able to learn on your own well. Mm-hmm. And then, because all throughout life, we're going to have to be constantly retooling and recalculating and recalibrating what we want to be good at. And like Jonathan said, now basically figure it out, go look for a course on it, download the PDF of the syllabus, read all the books, and you got it. Um, off to the next thing. I think there's an interesting note there, Nathan, and and I think probably Cameron. I will speak for you, but we we probably share all of us with a family background um, with people that were extremely into learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, a house just absolutely crammed full of books, and people that wanted to learn for learning's sake, and so that major had a major impact on all three of us, I believe. But uh, something you said there, Nathan, is really important. So this questions-based paradigm that I kind of advocate through what we do at Unbound. At the heart of it is we say, hey, that the absolute primary academic skill that is important to learn practically. Now, this is this is interesting here. Practically in today is something we call QEMCI, which is quickly and effectively master complicated information. And that's really just a fancy way of saying learning how to learn. And so what I think is kind of intriguing is that what used to be kind of a, you know, personal thing or came from your family or some people really into that or it was an academic thing or it was a person that won trivial pursuit and i'm probably dating myself with even just mentioning that game (laughs) uh but but you know that kind of idea that has now become center stage that that is the primary skill that is useful in today's world in other words and the way i put it to people is technology is a constant in our lives right now technology is a lot of things including a lot of this podcast and i'm a big fan of technology uh but technology is a disruptor and so technology constantly comes in and socially, um, politically, uh, academically, in all kinds of industries, it disrupts things. It, it breaks stuff. It makes things work differently than they did before. And so then you have a whole set of problems. And the people that can figure out those, you know, find the information and apply it to that problem in a way that solves that problem and can do it the quickest, those are the people that have competitive advantages in the marketplace. And so this whole idea that, you know, this loving to learn and being able to learn quickly that I think the three of us talk about is is, a, is an eight almost hobby or thing that we really enjoy doing. That's true, but it also has turned out to become the most practical skill for most people. Mm. In fact, much more practical than knowing a certain specific set of information because you major in a certain thing. Uh, and more mm. important than that is to come out with a set of tools that allow you to keep learning because you're in this rotational thing where you know every couple of years, Nathan, the thing that sparked it was you said, every two years I've learned more than I did in college. Yeah, almost by de- definition, the survival rate would be that you'd have to do that because of the pace of disruption and change. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you too- know that. 
Well, I just well, Nathan, wanna, you go ahead because I yeah, I was going to say yeah. I had a, a class. I did a year at DTS at some point, and there was a professor there who was getting ready to he was getting ready to outline a bunch of historical inf- context and background. It was names and dates and all the kind of stuff that would traditionally show up on a test. He's like, oh hey, by the way, don't try to memorize or write down any of these names or dates or anything. He said, I never. The phrase he used, and this was a jaw-dropping moment for me. He said, "I never memorize something that I can, that's on Google." Huh. And I was like, "What?" And he's like, "Yeah." He's like, "I want you to think about these big questions." He's like, "The rest of your life, you'll always have access to what I'm about to say in the next half hour. It's just context to set up the questions I want you to be asking." And that was uh, kind of a cool moment. I'm not totally sure. I think there are some things we should probably know off the top of our yeah. head, but um, kind of an interesting spin there on some of what you were saying. I think, Jonathan. Sorry, Cameron. Hey, he was being a good. He was being a good professor and giving you something provocative that forced you to think. I like that. Yeah. But yeah, I also thought about one of our more niche episodes that we did a while ago. And Jonathan, I don't know if you even recall this one, but it was it, it involved a Purdue engineering professor. Actually, I think the head of the engineer, the electrical engineering department. And he basically was lamenting the lack of funding that the humanities was getting at Purdue. And he said, basically, look, I was here because I wanted to be at a place that's not just a trade school. If it's just engineering stuff and, you know, all these technical fields, then it's, then it's a trade school. I want the humanities in here. And I'm, I can tell you, I have my students who are, are, are more competent than ever when it comes to mastering technology. They are so weak on their communication skills and so weak on thinking independently. And so that's just kind of a, a little bit of a vindication for what, what you were saying, Jonathan, because it's not just we all have access to reams and reams of data now. But also, we, we have access more than ever to, you know, mastering techniques and strategies, and we can develop competencies in some pretty specialized fields really quickly. But being able to just problem solve and think outside the box, and more importantly, articulate that to other people. We have another friend who also is a board member, works in engineering circles, and says one of the, the key issues he runs into all the time is that his engineers cannot communicate how the technology works <laughs> to those who aren't specialists. So all of all of this basically points in a direction of, I'll use a highfalutin term here, that would take us beyond just information to actual wisdom as well. But yeah. Well, I think that that's a really kind of the hardest of this questions-based stuff that we talk about. Uh, the way I put it to our students and into my own children is that everybody asks and answers the big questions. You know, why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? What happens to me when I die? All these things. Everybody asks and answers those questions. But increasingly, we live in a culture and a world where most people do so subconsciously. And there's a significant difference between the kind of people who answer those questions consciously and the kind of people who answer those questions subconsciously. And the people that answer those questions subconsciously can find themselves extremely competent with a set of practical skills, be it engineering or technology or coding or whatever. And then we're increasingly seeing two kind of, I think, pretty terrifying outcomes. One is just a total frustration with their life. I don't want to sit in a cubicle and code anymore. I don't want to work all these things. And, and no set of skills or tools to be able to figure out why that is. And so they run off and, you know, my favorite you know, throwaway line is hashtag van life. And then they're driving somewhere and, and they're living uh, now this kind of Instagrammed life that's also not fulfilling them. And the second is the quite terrifying you know, reality that if you're a young man, you're more likely to kill yourself than you are to die of almost anything else. 
and and to me that is 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 striking evidence of a lot of things and there's a whole lot of problems there but part of it is a bunch of people who have subconsciously asked and answered the big questions that have consciously done so and mm-hmm. so yeah to your point cameron i think the humanities forces college students to consciously sort of deal with those but and this is where i get really optimistic uh, yeah, that might be a great place to do that in the humanities, and I hope that we continue to do so. But you know, a better place to do that would be would be the church. And so, I think that there's this extraordinary advantage. And when I say advantage, I don't mean so we can make more money or be more powerful or anything like that. I mean advantage in the terms that we can help our fellow uh, people made in God's image uh, to thrive and to do well. I think there's a tremendous advantage for Christians in that instinctively, if you've been grown up in the church and the church has done even partly its job correctly. Uh, you should be somebody who consciously asks and answers the big questions. And that puts you in a really unique position in today's society uh, because increasingly you're finding yourself in places where people don't know that. Yeah. So Jonathan, that's, that's helpful. I, I want to, yeah, get you to comment on this. So oftentimes it seems like, okay, here's kind of the classic American standard institution project here. Christians get frustrated with it. And then we're going to say, we're going to step over here and we're going to build a parallel Christianized version of that same system. Can you walk us through, because you've lived some of this and studied a lot of it, what are some examples of ways in which Christians have tried to basically mirror the same system? Because what you're talking about is not a a Christianized form of the institution. It's a whole different thing. So can you kind of spell out kind of what is that, what's the Christian parallel to this? And then what's the in-between thing that you're doing that separates you even from a Christian version of the thing that we've just been um, thinking about? Yeah, there's a bunch of layers there, and I'm trying to figure out the best way to pull them through. And, and I'll just go ahead and acknowledge up front that I've got some mixed thoughts about this, including some ones that are in transit, right? Uh, so I think I would definitely- Welcome to the show. That's about where we live. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So, so I'm in a comfortable place here. Um I would think I would come from a more evangelical, maybe traditional stance, which is, you know, we're going to be salt and light. And so, you know, you grew up in a Christian home, perhaps, and your church, and then the whole idea is to send send people out, right? And so the church is a place to come and learn and gather, but then you go out into the world and that you should be very connected in that and you should be salt and light and witness to those folks out there. Uh, I certainly don't disagree with that, but I'm increasingly uh, not so sure that that's actually enough. Uh, now, I think both of you have read the Benedict Option, uh, and so mm-hmm. th- there's some interesting thinking there, and I'm not a full-blown advocate of that, but I do think that there's an interesting um, – here, here's the way that I've – it seems to me there's two ways to fall this worse, right? One is to say <laughs> I'm going to completely uh, isolate ourselves, and we're going to look like some version of the Amish, which is we're going to close off, put up the walls. The way I say it is, you know, we're going to run up the barbed wire, then put the 50 BMGs, and we're going to seclude ourselves in the world, and we're going to live a perfect Christian life. Uh, I think there's pretty solid, serious evidence that that's not generally a very good idea, right? <laughs> like that, that there, yeah. there's all kinds of problems that come with that. Uh, the other is to not acknowledge how incredibly powerful the culture is. And to say, I'm going to carry out my life and then uh, carry my light and I'm going to go out there and then be consistently surprised when the vast majority of our young people that we send out into the world become um, be- become secular, right? As, you know, that, there's a speaker that I heard years ago that said, you know, we, we keep uh, paying Rome and then be surprised that when our kids turn out to be Romans. And, and so, you know, there's an idea that, that, that the culture is, is quite powerful. 
I don't know that I'm looking for middle ground. I'm generally quite nervous about lukewarm middle grounds. But I, have to, I tell my students and I tell my children this a lot and say, look, I think what we have here is we have a situation where there are places where we are called to create really strong institutions and really strong cultures. And we're to do that so that we can preserve our Christian identity, but not so we can close off. So instead, it's kind of like we go across the river, we build a town, uh, we make it safe, and we could put good food in it and good lights and all these kinds of things. And then we, and then as we're doing that, we don't have a gate. Instead, we have a great big, huge welcome sign and a big drawbridge that's down all the time across the river and a huge sign that says, come on over here, come over here, it's better over here, come over here, come on, come on over here. And, and we're not doing it as an attack on the society, and we're not doing it as a, as a way to withdraw from the society. Instead, we're saying it's like, hey, there's a better system here. And so we're creating structures and systems to allow you to come and join us. And then it, it gives us a better base to send people out. Uh, and so there's, yeah, I don't know if that's a hybrid. And you can see that I've got some uncertainties here. I'm, I'm not, I, I'm trying very, very carefully not to sort of put this out as a clear black and white mandate. But I think that there's some level of necessity here where we're building extremely strong Christian cultures as a way to invite people in. Uh, versus this idea that we're going to kind of huddle over here and then quick send somebody out and then we watch them become a casualty and we're like, great, let's send another one. We watch them be a casualty and then we kind of sit back and go, wow, we're just not changing the culture at all. And, and there seems to be a disconnect there. You know, so I owe this insight that I'm about to give you from to a gentleman I knew who went to the same small little Christian liberal arts college that I did and then ended up teaching at Crown College for a while in Minnesota and then you know, left for personal reasons of his own and has kind of had some really interesting thoughts. There is a guy named Michael Farmer, but Michael once he, he said recently, it seems to me, and he was, he goes, you know, I'm basically being idealistic right here, but so Christian education here, now Christian colleges, the opportunity there would be that Christianity gives you a kind of universal language that would unite all the departments sort of in the classical sense, right? With theology as the queen of the sciences. Now, there are some scholars out there who are very, very adamant about this. John Milbank would be foremost among, among them. But basically, he said, you know, we, we, you, you have a common language. And the problem is most universities now, all of the, the different departments speak different languages, and you don't really have a university, you have a multiversity. But he, but he also said, though, but in, <laughs> in practice and on the ground, that usually is not what happens at small Christian colleges or, you know, larger Christian colleges, usually what, what happens, he said, so my experience was, is that they kind of go chasing outside trends and fashions in order to, to try to stay relevant and, and, and keep up and all of that. And so I think that that speaks a little bit to the ambivalence that, that, that was kind of in your voice there, Jonathan. I, I think there's some, there's some mixed feelings I have about all of that as well, but I'm bring, so I'm, I'm working myself up to asking you a really unfair question and just totally putting you on the spot but I know our listeners are thinking are thinking this and I'll I'll so I'll just phrase it unfairly and then you can you can parse it and unpack it but should people go to college should young people go to college yeah that's a really great question and I get I get asked that a lot um so maybe I'll ref you know when you get asked a hard question you don't like the the, the best tactic is to reframe it so it, and it and you can do that if you admit that you're doing it so that's that's the way the rules work at least that's the way I'm, that's the rules I'm making up right now everybody um, learn right now so, this is what you need to take yeah, away. that's right so 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 I'm reframing your question a little bit here Cameron 
uh, first of all, I, I think that you know the, the best answer is always it depends a little bit. But here's here's the question I think is is a little bit more important, right? Should all people and Christians especially know how to ask and answer the big questions? I think the answer is undoubtedly yes. That that is one of the primary jobs of the church, right? And so, in many ways, I feel like the church and the family ought to be doing a much better, stronger job of preparing students so that it's not like you have to, I, I really reject this idea that a parent would say, my whole goal is to keep this kid out of jail long enough to get them to college where they will then spend four years and come out the other end as an adult that knows how to think adult ways. I think instead we should be thinking as Christians to say, no, uh, the whole job of the family and the church is to make sure that when this person becomes a young adult, they have some really formative ideas that have been coached and guided and and helped by the church and by the family so that they have a really solid grounding and asking to answer these big ideas and some of these knowledge things that we typically think of college type stuff, right? And then I have this other kind of thing that I say a lot. And so if you go back in history, it was Christians who invented higher education. And they invented higher education primarily uh, to make sure that people were careful about the way they taught the gospel. And so that we had people that could handle that correctly. So it's worth kind of going back and saying, if that's the primary reason for higher education, then as Christians, we have a really strong uh, responsibility to make sure that that's the kind of outcomes. And when I say those kinds of outcomes, that higher education is providing and training people who have a significant positive impact on their culture. And so then that makes me want to beg and ask another question. Are we indeed doing that? In other words, are we accepting responsibility as the church to create institutions and structures that allow people to have a really positive impact in the culture? And now that's where it gets complicated. There are certainly institutions of higher education, uh, Christian institutions of higher education, who are doing that quite well, and we should really support and be thankful for them. But we should also look back and say, I don't know that that's the only way to do that now. There's some better ways to do that. And so I kind of have this opinion. We invented higher education. I don't see any reason why we can't reinvent higher education and do it better because I think Christians, the reason Christians invented higher education is they had this, they had this kind of perspective that made things make sense, right? They had uh, something to measure truth against. They had an objective reality. Uh, they were, you know, part of the reason science exploded in Western culture in ways it did in others is because we said that we had this ability to think God's thoughts after him. We we're made in God's image, and so we have responsibilities to do this. Uh, a lot of those things are missing in today's discussions. And I think Christians have this opportunity to say, hey, we have a better idea of work. We have a better idea of why you're working career in the first place. You're not in a career to build faith, fame, wealth, or power. Uh, you're in a career so that you can ultimately serve other people, so that you can see other people as, you know, hey, hey this whole racism, anti-racism, and stuff like that. I've got a better idea about that. How about we spend a really good time teaching all of our kids that they have to know absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt that everybody they meet, no exceptions, are made in the image of God. If you look at it that way, it's really difficult to get some really nasty racist ideas in your head, right? If, if you have to understand from the very beginning that people are made in the image of God. And so I think that there's a unique opportunity and, and one that I'm very excited about. And so that kind of, you know, should students, should Christians go to college? Maybe I would say Christians should be better educated better equipped to ask and answer the big questions, better able to ask good questions, and better able to take information and knowledge, think God's thoughts after him, and apply that to the general culture in a way that creates thriving opportunities for everyone, regardless of what they believe, because they're all made in the image of God. If college is the best way to do that, certainly. 
But if there's the question is there a better way to do that now? And I think that there's some really unique opportunities. Hey, so while you're on that, let's talk about economics from a Christian perspective here and stewardship, because that's going to play into this conversation. And I think for a lot of the people that I know, they say, well, I grew up like, well, actually, when I was in college, I met a bunch of guys who didn't go to college and their parents just said to them, hey, look, you're going to go to college for four years and it's going to cost you about 80 grand. That was way back in the day. Let's try 200 now. And and their parents just said, hey, we'll loan you 80 grand right now if you start your own business. And it probably won't work out. But in four years, you're going to have a wonderful education about the way the world really works. And for most of them, their businesses did work out. Um, and so there's a little bit of like, put your money where your mouth is, as far as return on investment for the outcome of this, that as we push into some of the future, like we can be talking about this theologically, theoretically, philosophically, but there's a dollar sign attached to the consequences of this. And I do all sorts of stuff that I never had any formal education for, but it works. So, I mean, that has to play into the future of some of this to, to some degree as well. So I don't know if that's a question or not. It's just an observation of um, there's a lot of stuff you can get done in life without an official certificate. Well, I mean, sounds an awful lot like project-based education. I know an institution <laughs> that does some really cool stuff in that area. So, no, I think that there's a, a – so, so just really quick, here's a fascinating – when I say reinvent higher education, I, I'm not throwing that out there into a you know kind of a void. I, I have some opinions and biases about how that works, right? Uh, so I just said at the beginning of this podcast, you know, why we had an answers-based system, why that was helpful, and, and why that was kind of designed that way, right? Well, in a questions-based paradigm, uh, then it's, it's sort of helpful to think about what looks good there. And I think that there's some absolutely amazing opportunities in certificate training versus degree training. Now, now again, I'm, I'm making an assumption that people have enough baseline knowledge, actually answers knowledge, to what I call run the republic, right? I mean, in other words, you, as, if, as a participatory citizen in a republic, you have to have a certain level of education so you have to know what things are going on. And so I'm, I'm perhaps naively assuming that there is a, a church and a education system pre-college that sort of uh, prepared and, and laid a foundation there. But after that, let's just think about a certificate program, right? Uh, what if we had a certificate program that said, hey, you need special information in something. Um, let's first give you a grounding and more practical education that has to do with relationships, um, time management, task management, how to work well, uh, all those kinds of things. Let's give you sort of a baseline uh, in that. And then let's, instead of giving you four years for a degree that may or may not be relevant in the field, let's give you a six month or a year long certificate program that you can do while you're actually working uh, that adds some additional skills to that. I think there's a fascinating situation here, right? I won't hire anybody with a marketing degree to do marketing because I'll have to spend so much time telling them all the stuff that they learned in college doesn't make sense anymore. I have, I have students who are going to really great colleges that are showing me marketing textbooks that they're using that refer to MySpace, MySpace as a case study. Uh, now, here's the problem. Instagram changes its logarithms every six weeks, and I have to figure out how to deal with that because that's how we get out a lot of our information. And so I don't have time to untangle somebody's brain from MySpace and have them go into to Instagram. However, if you told me that you had a certificate that said you could do Instagram marketing, and I went online and looked, and five companies I never heard of said that they hired somebody with that certificate and they had indeed had those skills. And I do a quick cursory internet search and they have like five legitimate companies. That is extremely powerful signal to me as an employer that this person with this, this certificate knows something about Instagram, right? And so there's just a whole new credentialing possibility open there that's much faster. 
Now, if that's the case, that means that you could credential quickly, and then as technology comes in and disrupts, you could re-credential quickly, and, and that your experience has a lot to do with those things. Now, let me add one more layer to that. Would you rather that be run by a bunch of companies who have various kinds of marketing forces driving them in the kind of the way they do those things? Or would it be more interesting to you if that was driven by a somewhat more uh, objective third party, say a faith-based organization like a church that puts at its forefront integrity and honesty and all those kinds of things? And that's where I think you see some opportunities, right? In other words, who better to design that kind of certificate program than Christians and the church who have a vested interest in not only that you know how to do Instagram, but that you have a really good idea of how you use Instagram in a way that causes human flourishing and doesn't cause use Instagram in a way that drives the suicide rate for young men, right? And so there, there's, a, there's an extra little piece there that I think is absolutely essential. And I think that's where things get really exciting from an um, educational perspective for Christians and for the church. So, Jonathan, I mean, obviously you've dedicated a lot of lives or a lot of your life to trying to think through how to do that. So there's kind of the idea we can listen to you say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then there's the whole, okay, how does it get done practically? <laughs> like, what's this look like? So, um, I mean, so you have a whole organization devoted and dedicated to working that out. Um, but just zoom out a little bit and say, so where are these glimmers of hope? Where are you seeing people doing what you you know, what, what you're presenting, are you like, Hey, this is, this is Jonathan brush cutting edge, or is there a, an undercurrent, be it a subculture that's leaning into this? I mean, you do have the major, you know, Volkswagen, Hey, we'll hire you straight out of high school and we'll train you the way we want you to be trained. And you work for us for five years and we'll call it even, you know, so there are corporations that are doing that, but from a third party perspective, um, who, who's playing that game right now, or who's, who's doing that, or where do you see um, yeah, what's, what's the state of, what's the state of your idea? Well, here's a cool advantage that I get because of my organization, I get people who are already, if, if you end, end up getting educated through Unbound, you've already decided that you want to do something a little different, right? So by virtue of that, I end up working with students who are a little bit different and think differently and sort of think outside the box. And so I get to see a lot of people who do this. So I have a tremendous amount of optimism when it comes to young people. I don't know what people they say, oh, millennials, all Gen Z. The millennials and Gen Z people I know helped me build a company from scratch in less time than anybody thought was possible. And so I have a tremendous respect and a tremendous excitement for that generation. Now, I know there's all kinds of problems, and I see it run into those, but I'm working with a subset of people that are absolutely phenomenal in their ability to quickly and effectively master complicated information. And so let me take a quick case study here for you, Nathan, and, and just show you something that I think is really interesting. Um, I had a young man that I worked with and that worked for me when I worked for non-traditional higher education and the predecessor of the company that I run now. And uh, so he came through this kind of non-traditional educational process. He was homeschooled. Uh, he earned a degree through Unbound. Uh, and then he and his brother uh, did some different things, but it was a real emphasis on that practical um, stuff. So, so they, they tried some businesses and failed at some businesses. And much like you were talking about, Nathan, uh, you learned some things there. And then uh, they kind of saw an opportunity in the property management arena. And they saw that there was a lot of shysters in that area. There's a lot of dishonesty in that area. And there's a lot of need for uh, some new systems. And so they got an opportunity um, uh, to, to present at a property manager's conference. And they basically said, uh, hey, we have some great information to share about property management. I can't remember what the information is about. And they said, that'd be fantastic. Would you like to speak? And they said, sure. When is it? And they said, well, you can have the national stage in two weeks. Now, the, the catch was they didn't have the information yet. Uh, so 
they ended up finishing the report at 2 a.m. the morning before they spoke, right? Because they had kind of the pieces of it, but they hadn't put it all together. Uh, they got on stage, and the company just kind of blew up. And so they called me, and they said, man, we're, we're going crazy over here, and we need a bunch of people that can do accounting work, and we need them like yesterday. And I said, well, I've got a bunch of students. They said, look, I don't even need to interview them. You just send them to me, and we'll have them working the next day. And so think about that here. We now have a company that is exploding in a very secular part of the marketplace that was really in need of integrity and honesty and transparency. They're making a significant difference with their clients. They employ a large group of people and give them fantastic working conditions. They're generating wealth that they are tithing back to their communities and using to build ministries and all these other kinds of things. And, and you know, I can provide them with workers really fast because I can take people and say, you know, if they came through this system, you can put them to work tomorrow to the point that they say, I don't even need to interview your people. If you say they can work for us, uh, we'll start them right away. Now, what happened then is that they had an unfair advantage in the marketplace. They had a, a pipeline of exceptionally well-trained and well-cultured, meaning they fit well into their culture, people that they could get and almost overnight could double their staff and make that run, right? Uh, but they also had an unfair advantage in the sense that it wasn't just the technical aspect. They had other pieces here in terms of their integrity and their honesty and transparency that nobody else in the marketplace had. And the result was that they're not only very successful from a business standpoint, but they're very successful in building the kingdom uh, and to really helping encourage human flourishing and, and, and really building the communities of the people that work for them and the people they serve. Uh, to me, that's a pretty exciting, exciting opportunity. And, and that's just one example that I can cite. I get to work in a, you know, in, a, in a niche, in a place where I see that happen a lot and would love to see it happen a lot more. Well, Jonathan, thank you for sharing that with us. I think um, most of the people who are listening to this will say, hmm, I wish I had done something like that. Or, hey, there's great opportunity um, for somebody that I know to be involved in something like that. But here's the other thing. I think if you're listening carefully to what we're saying, that there isn't, if you're listening to the vision that Jonathan was casting, there isn't an age group that does that. Everybody can do that at every phase of life. There's opportunity. Um all throughout life to be somebody who sort of actually, I think, I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you're sort of in that crew of like sitting on the cusp of continuously pondering and figuring out what it all means and then practically what to do with it. So thanks for adding a little fuel to that fire, Jonathan. I'm sure that uh, it's been a blessing to many people as it has been to us. Well, there you have it, folks. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.